Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, hello and welcome. I'm Bill Glasgow from the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing, with a look ahead to what 2023 may bring for the U.S. economy and states and municipalities. I'm here today with our co-host, Susan Walker, co-director of the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Hi, Susan. Hi, Bill. We have a full agenda today as we look forward to 2023 and take a look back at a tumultuous 2022. Oh boy, we sure do. And and some, some great newsmakers on the panel. Because today, as Susan said, we're going to measure the economic headwinds buffeting the economy. Talking to you, Jay Powell. What are the political challenges with a newly divided Congress? We'll get the latest on that. And how this all may play out in state houses, city halls, main streets, and markets across America. We'll dig into these weighty topics in just a moment, but first a few words. We're coming to you on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites and on the new special briefing podcast. And as always, we've taken audience questions in advance and we'll get to as many as we can in the second half. And of course, thanks to the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Advisory Board and the Century Foundation for your generous support. So now let's get to work. Our headliner today is Mayor Kate Gallego from Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix will be the host to many of the events surrounding the 2023 Super Bowl up the road in Glendale. And we also have from Moody's Economics, our longtime panelist, Mark Zandi, and economist Julia Coronado from Macro Policy Perspectives and the University of Texas B-School in Austin. We'll also get the latest scoop on Washington that we promised from Emily Brock of the Government Finance Officers Association. And with us to talk about the market and more is another special briefing regular, Natalie Cohn of National Municipal Research. Welcome to you all. And as I mentioned a minute ago, our first guest today is the mayor of Phoenix, Kate Gallego. A couple of words of introduction. She's a graduate of Harvard and the Wharton School, where Susan Walker also calls her home. And she's only the second woman to be elected mayor in Phoenix's century and a half long history. That's amazing. She is focusing on the city's future in biosciences and semiconductor and medical manufacturing, and says she wants Phoenix to become the most sustainable desert city in the United States. Mayor Gallego, welcome to Special Briefing. Floor is yours. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with such a distinguished group. And yeah, as you heard, I am a proud graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, which has been a wonderful asset as I've worked to lead Phoenix. Phoenix is the fifth largest city in the country. We are the fastest growing, which means we added more people than any other community. I've been serving as mayor since 2019. So COVID hit at the tail end of my first year. We then went into a very deep and very short recession and came out when Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation made a major announcement, our largest in city history. That might be familiar to folks because President Biden was in Phoenix last week to celebrate TSMC. There was several big announcements, including that Apple will make a huge commitment and be the largest customer of the facility, and that it would triple 
in size. So it was originally announced as a $12 billion facility, and now they have committed to $40 billion, so more than tripling the economic impact and, and announcement in Phoenix. It's exciting for us because we will be making the very most advanced semiconductors in our country. Right now, most of that manufacturing is not in the United States. And so from a national security perspective, as well as a great jobs perspective, it was a very big day for Phoenix. In our same market, Intel is also making huge investments. And so that has been a real game changer for us. In the greater Phoenix area, the Chips and Science Act has been enormously helpful to the future of our community and has really helped us diversify. We were a community well-known for the real estate industry and being dependent on the housing market and made a very conscious effort to invest in our already strong advanced manufacturing sector to help us diversify. We've also had several major announcements around electric vehicles and companies moving headquarters or expanding operations in the greater Phoenix area. So that has been very exciting for us. Like many cities right now, we are seeing a pretty significant need for more labor. We have a shortage in the healthcare market. When I am done here, it's a glamorous life I lead, and I'm going to try to get my son a doctor's appointment. His teacher said he needed to get his eyes checked out by an ophthalmologist. And the first two I called said that they could take me in April when there will be one month left in the school year. It's not just me, but we have so many others who are looking for primary care physicians, nurses, and, and that's a major challenge for our growing community right now. We are also pretty regularly needing to invest in significant wage increases at the city of Phoenix, whether it's the folks who pick up our recycling and solid waste or who work with us to drive our buses. We are having a hard time recruiting talent and are really seeing wage increases, which we hope will help in that area. Our construction market is at a very interesting place. We in the greater Phoenix area now have 187,000 units that are permitted, but not built. So they have gone through our entitlement process, but have not yet been built. Construction jobs are a great place to be right now with Intel and TSMC hiring a lot of the more experienced and technically trained individuals that's created a lot of more entry-level jobs. It is very normal for me to be out at a community event, a holiday market, and to see construction unions that are out trying to recruit new apprentices to go into the programs. They are recruiting at places they did not used to, including employment centers for people who've been incarcerated. And so we're seeing a lot of people who used to really struggle to get into the job market and have more challenges now have more opportunities driven by the construction market. But it's it's been an interesting time as, as we try to fit people and jobs together. And, and we are not the lowest unemployment, but when I meet with employers, it is the number one thing I hear now. We want to grow in Phoenix, but we are having a hard time fully hiring individuals to go into this community. We're trying to step up in a big way and partner, particularly with our community colleges. That shows up as tuition reimbursement, help with daycare, help with transportation costs, which we are able to do in partnership with the federal government through the American Rescue Plan. We've also invested in short certificates. One that got a lot of national attention was our Semiconductor Quick Start, which is a two-week program. And people can go from that two-week program into great semiconductor industry jobs in our community. First Lady Jill Biden came out 
and celebrated that program after we had the first class that was all women. But it's been a program that's been very successful and, and graduated many different classes. So we're we're trying to help people go into high wage jobs and, and diversify our economy. But it sure is an interesting time in Phoenix. Our housing market has led the nation in increases, and we're seeing interesting signals. Inventory is going up, but prices have not gone down yet. Things are staying on the market longer. New homes are doing quite well, but what we are seeing, I think a lot of people who are hesitating and trying to understand what interest rates are doing in Phoenix. We're also seeing people who are working full-time and unable to afford rent or mortgage right now, which is a newer problem for us. We have had a relatively low cost of housing, and that's been part of our brand, but it's gone up pretty dramatically. Uh, one out of four people coming to our community comes from Southern California, and our housing prices are significantly lower than the ones they are seeing in the market they depart. And we're seeing um, a bunch of cash buyers in that area. Not right now, but for a while, the housing market was driven by I buyers, And so we saw a lot of out-of-state capital coming in. It's been an interesting time in the, the mayor's office because we're seeing a lot of money coming into the housing market and a lot of new products. We have single family detached rentals are quite large and, and very popular in Phoenix. And we are seeing a lot of them permitted around TSMC, our semiconductor facility. We're also seeing a lot of new technology. We are seeing um, prefabricated homes or 3D printed homes come into this market. If you visit us, Next February in our downtown, when we're hosting Super Bowl, you'll see a lot of smaller lots that will now have container homes. The tallest container housing project, I believe in the world, but in the country is in Phoenix. And it's a, a pretty high quality product with great finishes, but quicker to market generally. Um, we're also just seeing a wide variety of, of innovation and investment leading up to the Super Bowl which is like a construction deadline for a mayor. So on Monday, I'll be at our airport where we unveil a major SkyTrain addition. So to move people more effectively before that, we are trying to finish up a bunch of transit projects to be able to move people during the Super Bowl. We think we'll have about a million people in our downtown, which is a downtown that is dramatically different than when we hosted last in 2015. We've seen a huge amount of construction, including through... COVID-19, we have more restaurants than before COVID-19, and more of them are locally owned. So we're hoping to show off a, a good product, and we'll have 5,000 journalists. It'll be viewed in 130 countries. So we, again, want to show a success story, a diverse city with high-wage jobs and, and sustainability at the forefront, as well as investing in our small businesses and equality. So an interesting time in Phoenix, Arizona, as well as for our country. And I'm looking forward to getting insights from this all-star panel about what's to come. Well, thank you so much, Mayor. And we are so proud to include you among us at, uh, at Penn and at Wharton. And we are very grateful that you will be staying on for lots of questions coming on what's happening and all the good that you have just described. So now let's turn to our second panelist, uh, Mark Zandi, who has been one of our frequent guests. Mark, you, this has been a tumultuous year, as I said, but in spite of the surprises, your forecasting has been right, as uh, so to say, on the mark. You've been um, pretty good going this year, and, and it's not just one year that, that that's the case. So we're very pleased to have you on once again. And this year, just 
yesterday or day before, we heard Chairman Powell restate the Fed's stance of no pivot and albeit a 50 basis point instead of a 75 basis point increase. So what does this pretend? And more generally, as we end 2022 and look forward to 2023, what's your view on the year to come? Well, uh, you're very kind, Susan, giving me a lot of credit like that. Uh, I'm not sure I deserve it, but I'll take it. Uh, so thank you. And thanks, Bill, for the opportunity. And uh, as you know, I'm a, a card-carrying member of the Penn family. I went to Wharton and I went to graduate school at Penn. And, and of course, I'm an Eagles fan. So I'm hopeful the Eagles make their way uh, to Phoenix uh, in early February. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb, uh, Susan. I'm going to say the probability we go into recession next year, 2023, is 50-50. Now, if I had to take a side, and I do, and that's what I do for a living, you know, I provide a lot of information, explicit forecasts to financial institutions and government. I'd say better than even odds, we're going to make our way through without an outright economic downturn. Now, under any scenario, it's going to be a struggle. Inflation is high. Got to get it in. Fed's on high alert, raising interest rates. We saw that yesterday. More rate hikes are coming. So in a world of higher uh, and quickly rising interest rates, it's hard to be optimistic that it's going to be anything but a struggle next year. But I, I do think we can make our way through without a downturn. And just one quick point, we don't want a recession. I've been getting a lot of questions about well, what's the difference between a weak economy and a recession? There's a big one. Uh, you know, it's about four or five million jobs, difference between four and a half percent unemployment or six percent unemployment. And particularly for low income households who have blown through their savings to kind of navigate through this high inflation, it would be devastating. And once you get into a recession, things take on a life of their own. Uh, hard to know how it all plays out. There's there's things, stress points out there in the financial system and elsewhere that once they come under stress can become a real big problem. And I'll also throw into the mix, given the election results and the now divided federal government, highly unlikely policymakers are going to come to the rescue here if we do go into recession. So we don't want to go into recession. Let me give you three quick reasons for a bit of optimism. And again, I don't want to oversell the optimism. It's going to be a struggle. First, you know, the inflation news has been pretty good. I mean, it's obviously inflation is really high. It's a problem. The typical American household is has to shell out about $400 more a month today than they did a year ago to buy the same goods and services because of the high inflation. And the typical American household makes 70 k a year. So you can kind of do the arithmetic. That's, you know, very problematic. But the inflation numbers we've been getting, particularly one we got for the month of November a couple of days ago, a Pretty, pretty good. You know, feels like we're moving into the right direction here very quickly. And just as long as oil prices don't take off and the pandemic uh, doesn't be- come back and bite us and Putin doesn't do something that's off the rails. I mean, a lot of ifs and a lot of uncertainty, but those seem like reasonable assumptions. Then I, I do feel as if we are going to see inflation come in here pretty quickly. And then ended by this time next year, uh, by mid 2024, I think pretty good chance we'll be back pretty close to the Fed's, within spitting distance of the Fed's inflation targets. And I don't think it's going to take much higher interest rates from here to accomplish all of that. The second reason for optimism, I'll give you three. I gave you the first one. The second one is the American consumer. You know, the American consumer in aggregate, I'm painting with a broad brush, is in a pretty good place. We've got a lot of jobs. Unemployment is low. I think uh, inflation is going to moderate. 
real wage growth will turn positive again here relatively soon. Leverage is low. Debt service burdens the proportion of income households have to devote to servicing their debt to remain current on that debt is pretty close to a record low. Households have done a marvelous job of locking in the previously low interest rates through various refinancing ways, so they're not exposed uh, to the higher interest rates, at least not directly. And of course, a lot of excess saving. You know, households are drawing down those savings that they built up during the pandemic to cushion the blow to their purchasing power from the higher inflation. So saving rates are very low, but that's what they're doing. They're not spending with abandon. They're not out there aggressively spending the extra savings that they built up, but they're spending it. And I think that'll continue, particularly for high income, middle income households. They'll do just enough to keep the economy going forward. And at the end of the day, the consumer continues to drive the train. We're still very domestically oriented economy. We trade a lot, but when it comes down to it, the trade is a small proportion of our overall economic activity. It's about the American consumer. And I think in aggregate, abstracting from you know low-income households, high-income households, but across the distribution in pretty good shape. Finally, one other reason for a bit of optimism here, it goes to something the mayor was saying about the difficulty businesses are having finding labor. Businesses know that their number one problem through thick and thin is going to be finding workers holding on to workers. You know, it's just demographics. It's just the aging out of me. I'm boomer. We're aging out pretty fast here. And immigration is has been weak. You know, it's picked up more recently, and that's starting to help out a bit here in terms of uh, easing some of the labor supply issues, uh, particularly in a place like Phoenix. But generally, immigration is under pressure given politics, policy, and of course, the pandemic. So I think businesses understand this, and they're going to be very reluctant to lay off workers. Now, they'll pull back on their hiring. You can already see that's happening. The amount of hiring going on is back to pre-pandemic, and I expect that to continue to weaken. Uh, and we'll see some layoffs. Uh, they'll, you know, that I can't imagine we aren't going to see some normalization of layoffs here going forward. But I think they'll be modest in the grand scheme of things. And I don't. It's hard to see how you go into a recession if businesses aren't laying off in a in a meaningful way. So you know, since the last time we were on, I was on in this uh, conversation with you. You know, oddly, I'd have to say I'm I'm actually more optimistic about our prospects going forward. And even then, Mark, you said when I raise a likely recession, you said, no, no, I'm not saying that. (laughs) So you're right on. And hopefully your optimism will prevail. We're going to turn to Julie Coronado in a moment. But let me turn to Bill to introduce Julie. Go ahead, Bill, please. Well, thanks very much. And this is just a quick reminder that this is special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. You can find this and all of our past episodes on your favorite podcast platform and on the Volcker and Penn IUR websites. And uh, with that quick bumper, let me turn this back over to Julia. You just ran the uh, the monthly National Association of Business Economists survey. So we're really we're really dying to find out what your colleagues are saying on average. And, and of course, what you're feeling and and whether you agree with Mark that we may actually pull through this uh, this mess. That's right. So we did. I'm the current president of the National Association of Business Economists, and we did just publish our outlook survey. We have about 60% of economists see a greater than 50% likelihood of a recession in the next 12 months. So it is sort of the baseline forecast, as we say. But that's a pretty close call. It's still not far off from Mark's assessment of, you know, 50-50. And, you know, the reason it's the baseline is, generally speaking, historically, you know, at when the Fed is raising interest rates, 
you know, it, it usually kind of ends sooner or later in a recession. And so we are on that side of the cycle. The easing of policy, the support from fiscal and monetary policy is behind us. Now we are seeing policy tighten on both fronts. But, you know, we don't have a lot of business cycles. It's a small sample. And there's been a lot of unusual elements to this cycle. Personally, I am sort of aligned with Mark. I think we've got a good shot at sort of a near miss, if you will. You know, a rocky year with a lot of adjustments but that the overall ocean liner of the U.S. economy makes it through on the strength of the consumer and the labor market. Why is this possible? Well, one of the unusual elements of the cycle was the strength of policy support. It was channeled through directly to the consumer and into that benefited from it through the labor market. So we've had the fastest labor market recovery in the last four business cycles from the deepest hole. So it's just an incredibly rapid recovery. And as Mayor Gallego outlined, on the one hand, this implies a lot of challenges to firms in terms of managing, finding the workers they need to meet demand, managing their workforce amid you know, pretty record levels of turnover. Consumers and, and workers have the ability to pick and choose or have had up until now. And so, you know, employers really have to compete and make the case to workers. So that's a good thing on the flip side. We often look at it like the labor shortages from the firm side. From the consumer side, obviously, that's a fantastic benefit. We have lots of research that looks at labor market scarring. That is the legacy of recessions through job loss, through long periods of job loss that leaves a lasting imprint on workers' earnings capacity. It leads to ripple effects through their credit scores, through delinquencies on auto loans, credit cards, mortgages. One of the special features of this cycle is we've actually had record low delinquencies on all loan types. That's never been seen in a recession before. Marx cited the savings that consumers still have on their balance sheets from the fiscal support they receive. So you've got consumers with, you know, through from the bottom to the top, consumers have higher credit scores now than they did before the pandemic. They have lower delinquencies on loans. They have jobs. They have earnings. So they're pretty cranky about inflation. Inflation is squeezing their purchasing power. But from a more fundamental basis, they've got a strong base. Now let's turn to the firm side. And I think Mayor Gallego outlined it beautifully in terms of things like in the housing sector, where there's so much demand and firms have had to innovate. She cited a bunch of innovations in the housing construction side. And that is a strong incentive. When the labor market is this tight, firms have to be very clever. They have to improve and streamline their efficiency, their operational efficiency. Another feature of this recession was that we never saw the pothole, the decline in business investment. Businesses have been investing right through the pandemic, first to uh, go to online work, then to deal with the labor market challenges. So it's really an environment where we've seen very powerful incentives for firms to invest in business transformation, business efficiency. You know, we've got a lot of things going for the economy. We've got gas prices finally coming down as a tailwind to start the year. So there's a lot of reasons for optimism. Where we see the pain and, you know, the survey, the, the NABE survey, 
you know, the number one risk was that the Fed over tightens policy. And certainly yesterday's message from Chair Powell was not particularly friendly. It was, uh, you know, he basically said that the Fed thinks they're going to have to raise rates higher than the markets are currently pricing. And what we're seeing in markets is, you know, a correction from very, very high valuations. So we had a bit of a bubble throughout a range of asset valuations. And we're seeing the tighter money, the higher rate environment taking its toll on asset valuations through real estate, commercial real estate, residential real estate, but also things like cryptocurrency. That was an area, a very bubbly area of speculation when money was very easy. And now that money is tightening, we're seeing some of the pain being taken there. And we're not done with this process. And that's one of the biggest risks right now to the economy is that asset price adjustment across a range of asset prices and the ripple effects that can have. Now, when we had that in 2008 and nine, there was a lot of leverage to higher asset valuations through mortgage debt. We don't have that now as far as we can see. For example, we've had a just absolute, you know, obliteration of valuations in the crypto market. And so far, very few obvious ripple effects, but it's very early. And that's where I would caution, very early to draw strong conclusions. We don't know. There were trillions of dollars of paper wealth have been erased in the last month or two. And we don't know exactly how that's going to ripple through the economy. And we're probably not done with that. So similarly, in the tech sector, the multiples on their valuations had gotten sky high during the pandemic. Again, easy money flows to the most speculative corners of the asset market, and that's being repriced right now. Some of the good news of that is some sort of uniquely what, where we're seeing the only areas we're seeing layoffs, outright layoffs, is mortgage companies and tech companies that are laying off significant amounts of their workforce. And those people will have to find jobs in other sectors. Now, the good news of that, though, is that these are relatively high-income people that tend to have greater financial wherewithal to navigate a shock versus the typical recessionary pattern where the lowest wage workers get hit the hardest. We have not seen that yet. So far, any labor market weakening we've seen has been concentrated at the top end the wealth destruction that we've seen obviously hits higher income households that, again, have greater wherewithal to, to navigate that. So it's a very interesting composition. You know, like Mark, I, I remain optimistic that the, what we are hearing from companies, this shows up in surveys of CEOs, not just surveys of economists and also in earnings reports. Mark touched on this. They're very reluctant to lay off workers. They have struggled very hard to staff up and they're going to kind of hold on to people. That's not a dynamic that we're used to in the United States. Very uh, unique. Usually we let go workers very quickly. That's sort of what we're known for that. And this may be a different dynamic from the last few recessions on that front. So I'll stop there. Well, thank you very much for overview, which is also optimistic. 
but nuanced, but with a focus on the strength of the labor market. And that's unusual for going into a recession and hopefully will prevail and prevent a recession. So moving on, we're going to pivot now to Emily Brock. So pleased to have you with us, Emily. Emily is the director of the Federal Liaison Center, Government Finance Officers Association. And Emily will talk about the outlook for municipal markets and with a focus on what is happening in Washington, D.C., and a lot is happening in Washington. Emily? Indeed. Thank you, Susan. And thanks again for having me here. A couple of key comments about closing out the 117th Congress at the end of this year and then beginning the 118th Congress in January. One key theme that I'm going to continue to repeat is the federal, state, and local partnerships that kind of weave through all of the conversations. Obviously, the complexion is going to change between the end of the 117th and the 118th. But in terms of closing out the 117th, there are a few key unresolved issues. Speaking of the federal state local partnership, the debt ceiling and a potential impasse on the debt ceiling is certainly something that we're watching. A treasury shutdown and the purchases of state and local government securities stopping certainly challenges the municipal finance context of making sure local governments can continue throughout the end of the year and into the 118th. But also funding the federal government is important to us. It's it's hit the headlines recently in the form of continuing resolution or the omnibus conversation. The Congress has given themselves one week to figure out if Democratic leadership can pull together spending package that would last us through the next federal fiscal year. But wrapped up in this conversation is a key concept important in the municipal finance space, that is Build America Bonds, which were created and issued during the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act, ARRA or ARA. Build America bonds or BABs are a taxable municipal bond instrument that's designed to be a taxable option, and the tax exemption is replicated through a subsidy payment. Right now, there's about $150 billion in BABs outstanding, and that means $14 billion is in question of receipt for state and local governments. Subsidy payments rely on Congress doing a specific procedural act by waiving PAYGO, and that is part of the omnibus conversation. Now, we rely on this $14 billion without question, but we also rely on other lobbies that are lumped into the process of reestablishing PAYGO. That is Medicare and some physicians payments. Also, farm subsidy payments are also in line to receive the subsidy payments. So parts of the conversation, as I mentioned, are still unresolved And the lobby, the municipal finance groups coalition have notified Congress of our express interest in ensuring that Congress waives PAYGO before December 31st. Now, on the prospect for the 118th Congress, which starts in January, obviously, we have a split Congress. What some people negatively characterize as gridlock, we might actually positively characterize gridlock in the form of a calming down. Markets love gridlock. We've endured so much uncertainty, $5 trillion in stimulus funding in the recent past. Some certain and deliberate policymaking might be welcome in the markets. And certainly issuers of municipal securities, that is the people that GFOA represents, as they always have, 
are going to be also be deliberate about their infrastructure investments and using the financial securities to finance them. Now, in terms of the federal, state, and local partnership, we are in the interesting position, and starting the 118th, in making the distinction between funding and financing. Of course, funding comes in the form of direct federal spending in state and local governments. Think ARPA, think IIJA, so the Reinvestment and Recovery Act, so American Rescue Plan Act and IIJA, that is the partisan bill, the bipartisan bill for infrastructure and the Inflation Recovery Act, that is the Reconciliation Initiative, provide project-specific grants. But the rest of financing general infrastructure is still up to state and local governments. So therefore, we have to push uh, funding conversation separate than the financing conversation, which is the municipal bond initiatives and the municipal bond initiatives, which underpin a healthy municipal bond market. Those things that we are going to continue to focus on in the 118th Congress includes restoring the tax-exempt advance or funding of municipal bonds. Also, rising up the ability to issue bank-qualified debt or the small borrower exception, where $30 million per borrower issued in a tax-exempt way to smaller local governments is certainly a priority of ours. Now, another direct pay subsidy bond feature may take a back seat for a minute because we still have the legacy effects of the PAYGO uh, waiver still in the back of our mind. Now, last but not least in the 118th, we understand there will be some oversight of the American Rescue Plan Act Dollars. In fact, Republican leadership in the House has suggested there may be oversight hearings and more congressional testimony that will be required. We certainly are aware of that, and we're confident that the stories that will be provided to Congress about the spending of, of ARPA funds will actually go to show it underpins a healthy recovery and moving forward into the 118th. Last but not least, I did want to mention recently, recent activity regarding the Financial Data Transparency Act. It's an initiative that has has been attached to the National Defense Authorization Act, which essentially requires standardization of financial data to be machine-readable format. We have yet to see an executable template that can reach across our entire market. And all of the participants in our market, that is universities, airports, public transit, counties, states, to be essentially shown into one template for financial reporting. But we do look forward, of course, to working with the SEC and the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board in determining those standards so that they are cost effective and they are usable for the protected authority of the issuers aggregating information. So that's just a quick update on what's happening in Congress and certainly look forward to the questions ahead. Thank you, Emily. And there are a number of questions for you and also for Natalie. Uh, Natalie, you are going to give us the overall outlook for municipal markets and uh, state and local borrowers. Please go ahead. Thank you for having me, and I will launch into discussion of the market and some of the changes we might see going forward. Clearly, interest rates affect a number of areas in the municipal market, both in terms of the dollars that are borrowed. It's more expensive to borrow at higher rates, obviously, but also on the revenue and the credit side, which I'm going to get into a little bit. The 
low interest rate environment that we've just come out of really served to boost taxable borrowing significantly. And we had a quirky relationship between the taxable and tax exempt that allowed municipalities to refinance using taxable dollars, refinancing tax exempt, which was a very quirky thing to have the rates that close together. But really what that did was it allowed for municipalities to help clean up their balance sheets, boost their balances. The bottom line is in pretty good health across the board. On the revenue side, inflation actually on a nominal basis, serves well on the sales tax side, on the property tax side, on the income tax side, and certainly also in the energy sphere on severance taxes. So those areas, again, it's nominal. You know, things cost more for governments to pay for, just like they do households. But the the dollars have come in. And uh, we've also noticed a number of states uh, have cut taxes as a result, and also been able to use some of the stimulus money to assist in a number of areas of on the spending side. And I mentioned that because should we get into that 50-50 or greater than 50% recession coming up in 2023, unemployment insurance is a shared expenditure. It's often a sleeper, not looked at that carefully, but in the recession, the Great Recession, a number of states borrowed from the U.S. Treasury, and there are some complicated rules about how the the tax on employers uh, can go up if the states don't repay quickly. So what we did notice, and NCSL, the National Conference of State Legislatures, has some very useful data on this, that ARPA money was used to reduce the unemployment borrowings from Treasury that are outstanding. So most of the states that were high on that list were California, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, and a couple of others. They've all reduced with the exception of California, where their borrowings from Treasury have gone up. So that's something to watch. We've also seen, as I said, in uh, tax cuts. There, ten states have enacted income tax cuts to the tune of about a billion dollars, and there have also been some cuts in social security taxes and other retirement income taxes. So that's that's a positive for residents. I do want to mention, though, I know we've touched on, and certainly our our notable economists have touched on the real estate issue. We have, you know, a lot of the municipal market is driven by property tax on real estate and the value of real estate and so on. There's been a significant migration that's taken place from denser urban areas to less dense. And and Mayor Gallego has certainly witnessed some of the positive migration in migration into a city like Phoenix. New York has experienced uh, at migration, a lot of the big cities and metro areas during the 20 to 21 was a huge uptick in out migration. So this is all just a shifting within the U.S. And that has consequences in a number of different ways. For one thing, you have higher growth in the smaller cities dealing with traffic, dealing with, you know, property values going up and so on, which is positive, but 
should we enter a recession, there could easily be pushback against property taxes. We did see that in the late 70s when there were a lot of tax limitations that were voted in terms of ballot measures. And then the other thing on the negative side is the out-migration reduces the population for the major cities. I'm just going to cite, because it's an, an interesting example, Chapter 9 is very rare, so I'm just using this as an example. It's very rare in the municipal industry, but a town outside of Philadelphia named Chester is in uh, bankruptcy, and a lot of the, the reasons have to do with legacy costs when the population was larger. There was out-migration. And they're now saddled with those legacy costs on the pension and the retirement benefit side, but they have a lot fewer resources. So those are some unique, nuanced examples of problems. But I would say going into 2023, bond volume is likely to stay low and balance sheets are generally healthy because you know of the revenue growth that I mentioned. And so I do think that there, there will be pretty strong ability to weather what goes on. So I also do have a positive outlook going forward. Thank you, Natalie. We are moving on to uh, questions and we might start actually with you, Natalie. We have a question from Mark Joffe, who is a policy analyst at Cato Institute. And it's um, a bit questioning of the role of forecasting. So I'd love to have your comments, but also like to have the comments of others on the panel, Mark, Julia. So prior to the passage of ARPA, Mark asks, fiscal experts expected a large shortfall in state and local revenues due to the pandemic. But this shortfall did not occur. Why were the forecasts wrong? Do you agree that the $350 billion of ARPA funds allocated to state, local, tribal, and territorial governments was largely unnecessary? If I can just jump in for one second, I'd like to, after we get the economic answer, I'd like to pivot to Mayor Gallego and find out from you how necessary was that shot of funding and how are you spending it right now? I'll just respond right off the top. There were some surprises that were unexpected. And in the early days of the pandemic, we were told repeatedly that it was going to be short-lived, the summer would slow down uh, spread of COVID and so on and so forth. So as once the market had a major hiccup in the spring, the expectation was that there would be major losses. However, if you go back to what was happening, there were shutdowns, people were at home and thankfully people had electricity and could go online and buy things. They could get their groceries delivered. You couple that with the Wayfair decision, which had been long fought for and open up the ability of state and local governments to tax sales on the internet. That was a very big surprise because all of a sudden we were at home lots of time you know to sit in front of the computer and sales blossomed then you had the migration which really boosted the migration coupled with supply chain shortage and you had property tax property values going up demand for property in less dense smaller communities going up and so those taxes boomed energy recently you know the severance taxes as we're now sort of reverting back to production in oil and gas that's gone up. So I think 2020 hindsight on something like ARPA is always good. Did we really need it? I don't think anyone forecast how things were going to go with COVID from the beginning. 
Natalie, thank you for that. Before we turn to the mayor, I'd love to hear more, and Julia, your views on that. Julia, you, you go first, and I'll go second this time. So, you know, I think what, what Natalie said is, is a perfect uh, framing for it. We were looking at the prior experience, and the prior experience of a deep recession is one where state and local governments' revenues get hit very, very hard, and everybody kind of prepared for that playbook. And in the event, in fact, state and local governments from a macro standpoint were a huge drag on the last recovery because we didn't do enough. We didn't provide enough support. And so the policy decision this time around was we're not going to make that mistake again. We're going to err on the side. In fact, the mantra was err on the side of doing too much rather than too little so that we don't get mired in years of subpar growth and terrible finances and battles with taxpayers. And we were sort of wildly successful. And again, it's easy to look in hindsight and say, yes, that was too much. But again, it came with the backdrop of doing, having done what much, much too little last time around. Yeah, Julia nailed it. I mean, the reason why things turned out better than anticipated was because of the very aggressive policy response by fiscal policymakers and the Federal Reserve. You know, $5 trillion in total in support, that's 25% of GDP. That's a very significant response, which I think was appropriate in the context of, you know, a 100-year event that uh, if we had not responded aggressively, the economy could have evaporated and the cost meaningfully greater ultimately. So I think it was appropriate. I think in hindsight, the $350 billion was uh, more than needed, but I would echo Julia's point. I think in the policymaker's textbook is uh, principle number one, if there's a high degree of uncertainty, err on the side of doing too much, not too little. And we made that mistake in the wake of the financial crisis. And that's why it took us 10 years to get out of that mess. So the fact that we were aggressive and provided that support, yeah, maybe a little bit too much, you know, if you kind of square the books, but I think entirely appropriate in the context of the uncertainty that we faced. And if I can add just very briefly, States and localities are still cautious. State and local hiring, state and local employment is state and local employment is still where it was before the Great Recession. It's recovered. It, states and localities have recovered most of the jobs they lost in that fairly brief COVID crash. But it's uh, teachers, firefighters, cop. You know, there there are a lot of open jobs right now that are that are not being filled out of caution and not out of uh, not because they're not needed. And Mayor, you know, what's your take on on how how necessary was this? How much did Phoenix get? And how necessary was was this? And how how are you putting it to work so you don't have a fiscal cliff when the money runs out? The funding has been very important to us. Property taxes have traditionally been difficult to raise in Phoenix and Arizona, but our voters have often gone to the ballot and chosen on their own to raise sales tax. So we have significant public safety expenditures that the voters authorized that were dependent on sales tax. We also have a sales tax related to infrastructure. And when those, it felt like crashed, it was very difficult for us at the city to try to understand what were the responsible decisions. We did not want to lay off police and firefighters. And we really struggled with those decisions. The federal funding was very helpful to us. And in Phoenix, we spent a lot of the first round CARES Act related to public safety expenditures. So the city received $293 million in CARES Act and uh, $396 million in ARPA. Uh, for ARPA, we are disproportionately putting that towards housing 
costs and costs related to homelessness, which, as I mentioned in my first round of comments, has been a real challenge for us. We've seen people who are working full-time struggle, and we are newer to economic homelessness. We have had homelessness related to addiction and other challenges, but this economic homelessness has been really challenging for us, and the federal funding has been key for us in, in keeping people housed and healthy. So we are very appreciative of it and feel like we still are not through the the challenges we face on the housing side. So what are you planning for? We're getting into budget season now. Uh, we will meet the first meeting in January. And really, I think every expenditure we're doing related to ARPA will be focused on housing related. So short-term crisis housing, as well as trying to support some of our special populations, such as veterans who we're seeing an increase in, in homelessness in, in those communities. We had put a lot of money towards ending homelessness among the veterans population and had great successes a few years ago. But unfortunately, we have gone the wrong way uh, in that particular area. We've seen a, a rise in domestic violence and associated challenges with housing. And then that's another one where we're hopeful that we can use the federal funding to get through what we hope is a somewhat temporary gap as opposed to a systemic change in our community. We think some of the rise in domestic violence is related to conditions that have been unique to the last couple of years. And so we are very hopeful the federal funding will help us get through some unique challenges we face right now. You factoring in a recession in your, your budget work uh, for the coming year? We believe that it is a, a tough time economically and we're being more fiscally conservative, but because we have so much influx of capital related to semiconductors and, and others industries, we feel like we will not be as hard hit as some communities that don't have quite as diverse of industries. So, so when, when when TSMC announces $40 billion and they're spending just one employer $100 million a month, that does have a real, even on a city of our size, a real economic impact and intel on top of that, et cetera, et cetera. So thank you very much, Mayor. We have two questions related to state and local revenues. One uh, is forecasts for state and local revenues over the coming year. And perhaps uh, Mark and Julia, you could comment on that. And a related question from Dan Vak, who is a reporter with Route 50. Why do revenue projections vary so drastically among states right now? So, um, Julie, you want to start? Mark, do you want to start? Who would like to lead us off? I'm happy to, to start us off. I mean, I think the different states have very different mixes of sources of revenues. And so their vulnerabilities to, for example, the housing correction that we're in the midst of vary quite a bit. All states are going to be vulnerable to that to some degree. And different states have different smoothing mechanisms for how they tax uh, property value based on valuations, how quickly they mark to market. So the states that have less smoothing mechanisms and tie the taxes directly to market values of housing are probably going to see a turn down, but from a very high starting point. You know, we had an incredible appreciation of property values. That was one of the things in addition to the federal funding. There was just an enormous surge in housing appreciation that feeds into state and local revenues, some with a lag, some less so. So it depends how much boom and bust you have in your revenue streams depends on how much smoothing you have and the way you tax those property revenues. Mark? Susan, yeah, in kind of my baseline, uh, reasonably optimistic worldview, which still is a very tough economy next year, but non-recession, I think state and local tax revenue nationwide 
nominal goes essentially flat, zero, which means real will be negative. We'll get some negative declines. I do think, fortunately, rainy day funds are flush in good shape, so that should help cushion the blow, and it should allow state and local governments to continue to do what they need to do. They need to be cautious, obviously, given the economic environment and the risks of an economy being weaker than anticipated, but I think they're in a pretty good spot. Just one point of interest, we do this uh, stress test analysis for state and local government budgets. We'll run different economic scenarios through our modeling and, and try to determine whether states have the rainy day funds sufficient to withstand the impact of those alternative scenarios. And under a kind of a typical economic recession, kind of uh, average length, average severity since World War II, and just for context, average length is 10 months, average decline, average increase in unemployment is about two and a half percentage points. So the nation's at three, seven, we go to six. If you assume that, most states can navigate through with the rainy day funds that they have. There's probably 10, 12 states that will have some difficulty in that kind of scenario. So that does give me, that kind of analysis gives me some comfort, some confidence that we're not going to see what Julie was talking about in the wake of the financial crisis, where most state and local governments had to really pull back and just exacerbated the economic problems that we, we were struggling with. So thank you, Mark. Now let me um, move this to you. So we're seeing a overall picture that it's going to be a lower real revenue this coming year. And yet 30 states or so have cut taxes since COVID. So the combination, will this lead to fiscal cliffs coming the next year or two? Again, I think, you know, what Mark is talking about is the rainy day funds, the excess balances and so on that are sitting in state mostly, but also a lot of local governments. And certainly the communities that have experienced growth are trying to balance, you know, how much do they spend versus how much stays in the balance. And I think the recession did leave a legacy of cautiousness among a lot of state and local governments that, you know, you got to be careful the next time around. So after that's a good spot, Natalie, I think we're to end. So cautiousness being prepared is going to help this time. Let's end with Emily. We only have a minute or two left. So what's your view on the likelihood of congressional impasse on the federal debt limit in 2023? That certainly will have an impact on all our forecasts. Go ahead, please, Emily. So I guess I'm allowed to forecast like Mark and Julia. Here we go. So my glass is half full. I think there is certainty in ensuring that over the next five days, there will be Democratic consensus and those 10 Republicans we need in the Senate to create an omnibus and an omnibus spending bill. Of course, that does leak over into the conversation about a debt limit. Debt limit will get more hairy if it gets pushed into the March time figure. But certainly, again, my glass is half full. Over to you, Bill. Well, thank you. My goodness, I was just going to ask the mayor one last quick Go for it. lightning round question. What This could be a good or bad. What, what keeps you up at night right now? We do worry a lot about political uncertainty out of out of Washington, D.C., and just trying to understand what, what type of partnership to expect. And then cybersecurity is another one that's high on my list of worries. Well, you, about the political part, you know who to call. So this is just terrific. There's so much to digest here. I'd love to go on for another hour, but we're at the top of the hour. And this brings our year ahead special briefing to a close. Thank you so much to Susan Walker, Mayor Kate Gallego. Uh, thanks so much for your for taking a whole hour out of a busy day. Mark Zandi, Julia Coronado, Emily Brock, and Natalie Cohn. Love to have you back. Thanks also to the great folks behind the curtain, without whom 
this program would not be possible. Adam Capaglio, Graham Dowd, Brett Hunt, Idalis Foster, Idalis Foster, pardon me, Diana Lind, Arden Jordan, and Amy Montgomery at Penn IUR. Thanks to the Volcker Alliance and members of the Penn IUR Advisor Board and the Century Foundation for your support. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.